Now a sixth officer in the Tyree Nichols case has been relieved of duty. The lead starts right now. Memphis police take new action, taking yet another cop off the streets. What we know about this officer's role in the death of Tyree Nichols and what his body camera shows. And new urgent calls for calm after violence in the Middle East claims more than a dozen lives in just the last few days. A path to peace from the Biden administration as America's top diplomat visits the region. Plus, a woman kidnapped, beaten, and tortured. And police say the man responsible may be using dating apps to find his next victim. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Alex Marquardt. Jake Tapper is on assignment. We do start today with our national lead, a sixth officer involved in the arrest of Tyree Nichols, has now been relieved of duty. Memphis police say that Officer Preston Hempel has not been fired. He is on leave while the investigation unfolds. A source confirms that Hempel was part of that same Scorpion police unit as the other five officers who were fired and were charged with murder. And the local district attorney says Hempel could face charges as well. Hempel's lawyer confirms that this footage from the police encounter with Nichols is from Hempel's body camera. It shows Hempel firing his taser at Nichols during that initial police stop. We have a warning, it may be difficult to watch. One of the prongs hit the bastard. 2938, did you also read that I deployed my taser? I hope they stomp his ass. I hope they stomp his ass. CNN Senior Crime and Justice Correspondent Shimon Prokopes is uh, with us here with more detail. Shimon, what can we see and hear? What, what does that body camera uh, from Officer Hempel reveal. Right. Important to know, Alex, this is from the first stop. This is the first encounter between the officers and Tyree Nichols. And then you see that body cam footage of this newly identified officer uh, approaching the car. You see another officer pulling Tyree Nichols out of the car. And this officer, who we now know as Preston Hemphill, he's been identified by the Memphis Police Department, deploys his taser. And it's truly disturbing. Obviously, the video is very disturbing. Many of us have seen uh, this video. And just the sounds and the things that the officers were saying that day, certainly very disturbing. And some of what this officer was saying was that, quote, I hope they stomp his ass. This is after Tyree Nichols takes off and runs to the second location. Now, this officer was not at the second location. His attorney says uh, that he is cooperating with investigators. This makes the sixth officer with the Memphis Police Department. Uh, but we also know that two sheriff's deputies are under investigation as well. So it brings a total of eight law enforcement officials who are on scene. What's important here is that we're just learning about this today, Alex. The Memphis Police Department say that they put him on leave once they started this investigation. But they're just now telling us about it. And they're just now telling us that he, too, was part of now the uh, Scorpion unit, which has been disbanded. Yeah, it is showing that this investigation is now expanding. Uh, Shimon, we also understand that Tyree Nichols' funeral is scheduled for Wednesday. Uh, What more do we know about the plans? Yeah, so the plans are still very much under underway. It's going to be at 1130 Eastern Time uh, in Memphis. Uh, the Reverend Al Sharpton is expected to give the eulogy. Obviously, family members and other dignitaries and politicians, I suppose, will be present. But it's expected to be a very emotional and moving day and certainly calls, uh, much as we have seen during the George Floyd funeral uh, and other funerals involving uh, individuals who have died at the hands of police, the calls for reform. And that is going to take front and center, of course, as well. And again, that'll be Wednesday 
at 11.30 Eastern time, Alex. Yeah, no doubt will be a very emotional service. Shimon Prokopes, thank you very much for that reporting. I want to bring in Eric Guster, a criminal and trial attorney, along with retired Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey, who served with the Los Angeles Police Department. Thank you both for joining us this afternoon. Eric, I want to start with you and with the latest here. The, the sixth officer now relieved of duty in Memphis. It's not clear, as Shimon was just saying, whether he's going to be facing any charges. Why not? And do you expect more officers who are on that scene to face disciplinary action? I expect a lot more people to face disciplinary action. When you have a unit where one of these officers tased him, which that is what Preston did, he tased him, then said, I hope they stomp his ass. This is what this unit did. And you cannot convince me in a million years that only these few people knew what this unit was doing. Some of their uh, higher ups in the department had to know because this was obviously their normal method of operation. This is what they did all the time because everyone involved, including the guy at the first stop, Hemphill, said, I hope they stomp him, which he knew that's what they were going to do. He had an indication that that is their style because he was part of it. So I do believe that this is one of many, which when I watched the tape, I noticed what this guy said and said, why is this guy not not being suspended? Why is he not being Mm -hmm. disciplined? And why does it take several days for us to get to him right now? And Sergeant Dorsey, in terms of watching that tape, according to DOJ's National Institute for Justice, they did a comprehensive review of 70 studies on those body-worn cameras, and those studies showed no consistent or statistically significant effects. So, of course, it's thanks to the body cameras that those officers were wearing and surveillance cameras that we saw the actions of these officers in Memphis. So that begs the question, did these officers just not care? Well... They were in a zone. Adrenaline was pumping. And this is what they do. They it just it just happened so naturally. This is how they conduct and comport themselves. And so uh, we hear this uh, confirmed and corroborated by Hemphill, who didn't have the physical stamina to go in foot pursuit and get in on that second uh, uh, attack on Mr. Nichols. He said, I hope they stump his ass. And so the problem that the police chief continues to have so much for transparency, we're just finding out about Hemphill, but her problem is multi, multifaceted. She unleashed inexperienced, unsupervised miscreants on an unknowing community. She created this scorpion uh, task force. She put these officers on that unit, and then she failed to uh, acknowledge complaints that were coming in from the community about excessive use of force. And so she has a part to play. She's complicit and she needs to go. But Sergeant, are you surprised that these officers, knowing how many cameras were around, did not act differently, that they just went ahead with this? I'm not surprised because they were just in a zone. And that's why it's so important to have field supervisors, which the chief admitted she doesn't have. You need to have a patrol sergeant like I was to roll up on these calls when you hear your officers go code six Mm -hmm. so that you can monitor their activity. And if you observe a use of force, you can then manage it. You can pull those officers off. You can say, hey, that's enough. We know that these were just basically uh, officers who were one click away from being a rookie out there unsupervised. And so I'm not surprised at all. And we know that these officers understood what they were doing because they were creating an audio record to manufacture the probable cause. Mm -hmm. And at one point, you even see an officer shine his flashlight up at the sky cop as if he was thinking, you know, his flashlight on the camera might preclude anyone from seeing exactly what was going on. This is very troubling. That's that's really that's a very interesting point. 
Um, Eric, one of the fired officers who has been charged in the Nichols death, Demetrius Haley, he was also a defendant in a 2016 civil lawsuit where a county jail inmate claimed to have been beaten. That lawsuit was then dismissed. But do you think uh, evidence collected in that case could now be used in this time? Yes, because when you have incidents of prior acts, especially acts that are very similar to a case, they can be used on the criminal side and the civil side. For example, when we handle cases on the civil side, we can subpoena prior evidence. We can talk to the experts. We can bring in the police reports and the victim and the witnesses to talk about what that person did. Because if it shows that he had a propensity for violence and that goes into what the Memphis PD's issues will be, the negligent hiring and supervision of these officers They should have known about his past and should have had him under very close scrutiny to make sure he didn't violate something like that again. We have heard calls for years for police reform on the national level from protesters, from lawmakers, uh, from President Biden. Sergeant Dorsey, what kind of legislation on a national level, federal legislation, could have prevented this kind of horrific incident? I don't know that there's anything that could have prevented it, but certainly there needs to be an end to qualified immunity. And while I don't say no to anything that they want to do on a national level in terms of legislation, the problems that we're seeing are local. And so understand this police chief has complete autonomy over her police department. And so uh, she will decide uh, which officers will be investigated, if any, which officers will be uh, disciplined and to what extent. And so there needs to be now an independent audit done of that unit and every specialized unit across these 18,000 police departments. Perhaps uh, President Biden can compel these police departments to do just that, withhold funds, uh, create a consent decree across all 18,000 so we can see exactly who the bad apples are and get them off the department. Yeah, that that unit, the Scorpion unit now has been disbanded. But Eric, just to follow up there, do you see laws Uh, going forward that are going to be up for debate as a result of of Nichols' death? One law that we've been pushing for for years was body cams. Without the body cams, none of this would come to light. You have the cameras on the poles that were crime crime prevention cameras. However, body cameras worn by officers will tell the whole story. And we have to make sure nationally that they cannot just on their own cut the body cameras off and on. Make sure they're recorded with every single thing they do, because without that footage, the story, like the officer said, he reached for so-and-so's gun. He reached for my gun, man. Those stories, when they write those, the public and the officials tend to believe them. So we need that level of scrutiny with cameras to show us every single thing that happens when an officer intervenes with any type of citizen. All right. Eric Guster, Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey, thank you so much for your time and expertise. Ahead in South Carolina, the theory of a second shooter is introduced in the trial for Alec Murdoch, the prominent attorney accused of killing his wife and son. Plus, the political showdown playing out as President Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy prepare to meet. Why House Republican leaders say they've already won. But first, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in the Middle East. His message as the U.S. tries to stop a tinderbox from igniting and turning into a full-blown conflict. And our world lead Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrived in Israel for his first visit since Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu returned to office. Blinken's visit, which will also include the occupied West Bank, 
comes as violence in the Middle East has claimed more than a dozen lives in just the past few days. CNN's Hadass Gold is in Jerusalem, where Blinken is trying to navigate some dicey diplomacy. As the U.S. Secretary of State's plane landed in Tel Aviv, so did hopes that Antony Blinken's visit will dial down the raging temperature on the ground here. After days of some of the worst bloodshed for both Israelis and Palestinians in years, from the occupied West Bank to Jerusalem. We're urging uh, all sides uh, now to take urgent steps to restore calm, to de-escalate. Um, we want to make sure that there's an environment in which uh, we can, I hope, at some point create the conditions where we can start to restore a sense of security for Israelis and Palestinians alike, which, of course, is sorely lacking. Blinken's meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was already set to be prickly, the top U.S. diplomat's first visit to Israel since Netanyahu's new government came into power, largely considered the most right-wing, nationalist, and religious government in Israeli history, now reaching an even greater urgency. We continue to believe that the best way to achieve it is through preserving and then realizing the vision of two states. As I said to the Prime Minister, anything that moves us away from that vision is, in our judgment, detrimental to Israel's long-term security and its long-term identity as a Jewish and democratic state. Blinken seemingly alluding to Israeli moves in the wake of attacks, including demolishing homes of attackers and even pushing draft legislation that would revoke the Israeli residency cards of the families of those deemed terrorists. Netanyahu facing his own internal pressures from the more extremist members of his cabinet to go even further in response to these latest attacks. The Israeli leader barely mentioning the recent wave of violence, arguing that it is through expanded normalization agreements with Arab countries that will ultimately help bring peace on the ground here. I also believe that expanding the circle of peace, working to close, finally, the file of the Arab-Israeli conflict, I think would also help us achieve a workable solution with our Palestinian neighbors. Blinken heads to Ramallah on Tuesday to meet with Palestinian leadership, where he will likely be pushing for them to restore the security coordination with Israel the Palestinian Authority cut last week, seen as one of the few tools available to help prevent an escalation of violence. Another thing that really resonated today from Blinken's visit is he made the Biden administration's strongest and most direct comments in response to the Netanyahu government's planned judicial reforms that will essentially allow the Israeli parliament to overturn Supreme Court decision. That's drawn out 100,000 protesters in the streets recently. Blinken urged Netanyahu to build a broad consensus before enacting the reforms and seemed to loud what he said, the vibrancy of Israel's civil society that has been on full display, a clear reference to those protesters that have been out in the streets recently. Alex? Very Times, Hadass Gold in Jerusalem, thank you very much. Also in our world lead, there are now conflicting reports about who is responsible for today's deadly explosion at a mosque, mosque in Pakistan. It happened in Pakistan's northwestern city of Peshawar, that is near the border with Afghanistan. At least 61 people were killed and 157, we understand, are injured. Pakistani officials blame a suicide bomber. A spokesman for the Pakistani Taliban says the group had nothing to do with it even though statements earlier today indicated that the bombing was revenge for last year's killing of a leader of the Pakistani Taliban. To Ukraine now and the ferocious ongoing battle around Bakhmut in the eastern part of Ukraine. The man who currently commands Ukrainian forces there has mentioned a possible withdrawal of his troops, saying such a move would be done for the sole purpose of saving Ukrainian soldiers' lives. CNN's Sam Kiley is back in Kiev for us. Sam, this is the first time that we've heard a top Ukrainian official openly talk 
about pulling back from Bakhmut. That's right, Alex. Uh, they will, you'll recall that uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Ukrainian forces withdrew from Solidar, which is just to the north of Bakhmut, again citing the need to protect uh, the lives of its soldiers. Really, the focus in Bakhmut, the Russian focus on Bakhmut, has always been baffling to the Ukrainians. And whilst they've been able to use it as an environment in which they've been able to, in their words, kill large numbers of Russian troops, it has also taken a very heavy toll both on the city and indeed on Ukrainian troops. So there would, there was always really going to be, and certainly this has been a view expressed to me privately by senior commanders on the ground even some months ago, uh, back in December, they were saying, well, eventually we will withdraw once we've done enough damage to the Russians. And the reason for that, Alex, is that uh, there is no particular strategic importance to Bakhmud other than for the Russians, perhaps an opportunity to trumpet uh, a victory, albeit one that has been, if it does finally fall to the Russians, it will have been an extremely bloodily won victory, Alex. Yeah, that battle seeing as much more uh, symbolic than strategic. And Sam, you, the Ukrainian President Zelensky, he was down in the uh, southern Mykolaiv region today. He had another plea to U- Ukraine's allies. What did he have to say? Well, he's repeating and indeed getting more uh, volume with his uh, demands almost for strategic weapons. Uh, just in the last week or so, the international community in the form of NATO and other allies have agreed to send uh, modern battle tanks to Ukraine. Those are tactical weapons. What Ukraine is saying is that, yes, thank you very much, we're happy with that, but what we really need are surface-to-air missiles to protect the airspace, long-range missiles, which they're being denied, particularly by the United States, for fear that they could be used to strike targets inside Russia itself. And similarly, they want fighter bombers, either MiG-29s and other similar Soviet-era aircraft, which are still on the inventory in some eastern European nations, even though they have all switched to uh, NATO uh, Western aircraft, uh, or indeed in the form of F-16s, which has been frequently muted here. All right, Sam Kiley, great to have you back in Ukraine. Thank you very much for that reporting. And next, to the political showdown playing out here in Washington that could have national consequences, plus Donald Trump's loyalty test for the man who could be his biggest rival in 2024. In our politics lead, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are set to meet on Wednesday for the first time since Republicans took control of the House earlier this month. Now, this meeting comes amid a standoff between the White House and House Republicans over raising the debt ceiling, which is raising fears that the U.S. could default on its loans for the first time in history. CNN's Manu is on Capitol Hill, but I want to start with CNN's Phil Mattingly, who is at the White House Phil, the Biden administration, they are maintaining that they're not going to negotiate on raising the debt ceiling. So what is how is the White House characterizing this meeting? You know, it's interesting. I actually, Alex, just a few moments ago asked President Biden what was his message going to be to Speaker McCarthy. This is what he said. What is your message to Leader McCarthy? To Speaker McCarthy. Sorry, sir. What will be your message? Show me your budget. I'll show you mine. Do you have any plans? 
that message, show me your budget and I'll show you mine. And it really gets at what we've heard from White House officials over the course of the last couple of days. The idea that they need to see some kind of plan from Republicans, not that they're willing to negotiate over that plan. To some degree, there's a political element to wanting to see a plan. And in the absence of a plan, you've also seen White House officials trying to seize on something that Speaker McCarthy has said is off the table, potential cuts to Social Security and Medicare. We just got a statement from Andrew Bates, a White House spokesman, trying to allude to the idea of of Speaker McCarthy taking those cuts off the table entirely, pushing instead for domestic budget cuts. Uh, Bates saying as they vote for even more tax welfare for the rich, Republicans across the House conference are demanding cuts to Medicare and Social Security as ransom for not triggering another economic crisis. Cites that McCarthy said they were off the table, but also points out if there's no other plan for White House officials to consider, how do they know that that's not the case? And I think that gets at the reality right now. This is a moment of very clear posturing on by both sides in terms of who can win the political day. But one thing is very clear, despite the messaging back and forth, White House officials are steadfast. There will be no negotiations in their eyes. They believe this is something Congress has to do, something Congress must do. No matter what Republicans put to the table, there's pretty clear, though, that they want something on the table, if for political reasons, than no other, Alex. And Manu, Republicans of the House obviously seeing this very differently. So what is Speaker Kevin McCarthy saying? Yeah, they're ruling out with what the White House is calling for, which is to raise the debt ceiling without any conditions whatsoever. They say there needs to be a negotiation, a back and forth, and also spending cuts tied to it. Now, Kevin McCarthy has not specified exactly what he wants, but he is indicating, and his allies, we are learning that they are open to cuts to domestic programs, steep cuts to domestic programs, some cuts to defense programs, and as McCarthy McCarthy indicated yesterday they are trying to steer clear of cuts to Social Security and Medicare. What I'm talking about, Social Security and Medicare, you can keep that to the side. Is defense spending on the table? Well, look, I, I want to make sure we're protected in our defense spending, but I want to make sure it's effective and efficient. I want to look at every single dollar we're spending, no matter where it's being spent. I want to eliminate waste wherever it is. But the challenge for McCarthy is that there is no consensus yet among House Republicans. Some believe the idea of cutting simply discretionary spending will not get them to where they need to go. Other Republicans, including one Congressman Greg Pence, told me that he would vote against any debt ceiling increase, even if every single one of his priorities was included as part of that package. That is a view that is reiterated by a handful of members here. So, Alex, even as they are trying to put together a plan, can they get a plan that gets 218 votes in the House? A big question at this moment. A big question. Indeed. And Manu, George Santos, uh, the uh, embattled new freshman Republican congressman, he met with Speaker Kevin McCarthy today. What more do we know about that? Yeah, he did meet it. We saw him coming out of the meeting. He declined to even confirm that they met. He did was asked about whether or not he'd be open to any sort of cooperate with any sort of House ethics investigation. He said that, quote, I am not hiding anything and said that he would indeed cooperate. Now, I did also ask the speaker as he was walking into the office, did you meet with George Santos today? He said, yes, I did. But then he did not respond when I asked him, what was that meeting about? Now, McCarthy has said that he would judge Santos on how he acts going forward, will not call on him to resign saying that it's up to the voters of his district. And of course, Alex, if he were to resign, that would be a political headache for McCarthy because that is a seat that Joe Biden carried, a district that he carried by eight points. They had to defend a special election if he were to step aside. For now, staying in Congress. And such a slim margin that Republicans have in the House. Manu and Phil, thank you very much for that reporting. Let's discuss all this with our panel. I do want to start with this uh, 
this fight over the debt ceiling. We also heard uh, from one of uh, Kevin McCarthy's top deputies, the Republican uh, conference chair, Elise Stefanik. She said this earlier today about this meeting coming up between Biden and McCarthy. Let's take a listen. Well, first of all, this is a win. Remember, President Biden and the White House wanted to refuse to negotiate. So the fact that now Speaker McCarthy is sitting down with President Joe Biden on Wednesday, that is a win for House Republicans. Nia, is is that what this is about, uh, scoring a political win? Well, well, listen, I I don't think this meeting is necessarily a political win. I think it's a meeting that is happening because there's a new Congress, there's a new Speaker of the House. Uh, This meeting, I think, was telegraphed for uh, many weeks by by, uh, this White House. I think sort of the good news about the debt ceiling fight is that uh, sort of we've got a couple of months before a calamity sets in. And, um, you know, that's sort of the good news. I think the bad news is that the two sides are very, very dug in. We hear from, obviously, the House saying that they want cuts. It's not clear what cuts they want. Uh, and then we hear from, uh, from the White House essentially saying they are not going to negotiate, that they're not going to see this as a ransom, because they know that if there is a default, what that could mean for this economy, which is starting to pick up, which is starting to expand, uh, and see some of the effects of what the White House says is the, the correct uh, course of, of, of uh, you know, administering uh, the budget and the economy. But listen, there is some time, but I think we're going to be here weeks and weeks and weeks uh, talking about this. But Scott, Republicans did vote to lift the debt ceiling back in 2019. So what's so different now? A lot of things have happened since then. Uh, we had this thing, COVID, and we spent a lot of money around that. And then we've had two budget reconciliation packages, which Democrats did without any Republican votes. I mean, we've spent a lot of money and Republicans ran their House races uh, in this last election on needing to control spending and uh, the role that that played in inflation in this country. So I actually think they're on firm ground. I think on this meeting, it's it's a good thing that they're meeting, although I think Kevin McCarthy is going to come out and see a shadow and we'll have six more months of (laughs) (laughs) posturing on this because we have some time. Uh But the fact that they're talking is a good thing. And I think most people want a deal here and want to get something done. I will say in that reporting we just saw, the, the congressman who said, I won't vote for anything. The one thing I worry about is if you have a handful of Republicans who say, I'll never vote for anything no matter how good it is, mm-hmm. you know, how many of the other Republicans are going to say, well, why do I have to walk the plank when such and such doesn't? And that, that does give me some concern. And, and look, I mean, if you have a block of Republicans who won't vote for a deal that does include cuts, which is by no means something that we know can happen, then there is literally no incentive for the White House to even contemplate making concessions, right? That this is the burden on the person making demands in a negotiation is to say, if you agree to what I want, then I'll deliver the votes to execute that. And we have no reason right now to believe that Kevin McCarthy can do that. And I will just say, Alex, this is also where Republicans really, really do feel the absence of figures like a Paul Ryan, who are very articulate and intelligent about talking about spending and what would need to happen in order to bring the government back into balance. It's been quite a while since the party has had someone as comfortable as Ryan was in his day or as John Kasich was back in the 90s going on TV and talking about where we are now and the sacrifices that they believe the American people should make. I do want to turn to 2024. Obviously, it's been some time since Donald Trump announced his candidacy uh, for the presidency yet again. We've now seen him back on the campaign trail. Two early primary state stops over the weekend, South Carolina. He was joined by uh, Governor Henry McMaster, uh, as well as uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, multiple congressmen. Now, we've heard a lot of talk, Alencia, about turning the page, moving on from uh, Donald Trump. Are you surprised at the, the level of Repub- Republican officials who appeared with him? 
I'm, I'm not surprised, honestly, because they will say one thing, and then when Donald Trump mentions their name or he decides to go to their state there, some of them are, are behind him. However, I think majority of the Republican Party, I'm not a Republican, clearly, but what we've been hearing is that behind the scenes, they wish that he would go away. They wish that this thorn in their side was something would happen with these investigations, or he would say something, or, or somehow he would disappear. But for right now, it's unfortunate what they know is that there's a base that still actually is with Trump. And in order for them to win in some of these areas by slim margins, they need his base. And so they're trying to figure out behind the scenes what to do with him while he's still flailing out in public, trying to have some salvage of a campaign while he's under all these criminal investigations. He's going to get some support wherever he goes. I mean, I don't know if he's the front runner. I don't know if there is a front runner because I think DeSantis on net is more popular than he is right now. But sure, there are going to be some politicians that step up for him. But this race isn't going to be decided on endorsements. I think the macro overlay of this whole race is, is either political party going to acquiesce to the clear market demand for new leadership, both parties, the American people do not want a rematch. And if one party nominates someone new and one party nominates someone old, all issues and personalities aside, new is going to have an advantage. And this, I think, is going to be one of the key arguments DeSantis can make. You don't have to nitpick at Donald Trump, but there's one immutable fact. He's way older than DeSantis, and that ain't going to change. And DeSantis, it wouldn't be a, a, a Trump campaign stop without you know, Trump going after you know, one of his potential rivals with a nickname. And, and it seemed like DeSantis was <laughs> the main person who was in his sights uh, over the weekend. Let's take a listen uh, to a bit of what he had to say. Ron would have not been governor if it wasn't for me, and that's okay. Uh, and uh, he, number one, he wouldn't have gotten a nomination. And number two, he wouldn't have beaten uh, the de- his Democrat opponent. So then when I hear he might run, you know, I consider that very disloyal, but it's not about loyalty. But to me it is. It's always about loyalty. It's not about loyalty, but to me, it's always about loyalty. But Mia, aside from the loyalty, what do you make of him going after DeSantis? Yeah, listen, he didn't include his nickname there, which I guess is Ron DeSanctimonious. Right, you stick with that one. We need to workshop that. Yeah, it might be. um, So we'll see. Listen, Ron DeSantis is clearly uh, in his crosshairs. Not clear in polling I've seen so far that he can sort of match the solid 30 or 40 percent of support that uh, Donald Trump has right now. But it's early on. We don't know if Ron DeSantis is actually going to run. He certainly is raising his national profile by going after uh, AP studies courses in African-American history uh, and fighting with Mickey Mouse. I think it's so revealing, though, uh, the way he goes after DeSantis. Mm-hmm. It, it just speaks to the basic uh, limitation of Trump as a political player at this point is that it's all about Donald Trump all the time, right? And I think Scott's absolutely right that the future usually beats the past in American elections and candidates who talk about what they're going to do for you usually do better than candidates who talk about themselves. And so the notion that your attack line against Ron DeSantis is that he's not adequately grateful to me. (laughs) I'm not sure that there's a huge slice of the country that's very preoccupied with that question. But I also think he's showing that he sees DeSantis as a potential threat to whatever momentum he has. That is very clear. And so we'll see what happens between these two very extreme Republicans. We we heard from uh, the Atlantic's McKay McKay Coppins. He wrote that while many Republicans do want to see Trump go away, that they really don't have any plan. I want to read a bit of what he wrote. Lots of Republicans want Donald Trump to disappear from politics. Their main strategy here is hope. Uh, Faced with the prospect of another election cycle dominated by Trump and uncertain that he can actually be beaten in the primaries, many Republicans are quietly rooting for something to happen that will make him go away. And they would strongly prefer not to make it happen 
themselves. <laughs> Scott, is hope a strategy? Uh, no. There's only one strategy for getting rid of Trump. It's to beat his ass. I mean, I don't know what else to say. Ron DeSantis is going to have to get in this race and beat him. That's the only way to make this go away. Now, he might have legal troubles and other things are going to happen. And that's it. There's no other strategy except to run and get more votes and win. And there are things that will complicate that. Other people getting into the race for instance. Yeah, but look, they, let me just tell you. You got Trump and DeSantis who are in a different universe in terms of their level of national support. And everybody else is like fighting for 1% of the rest of the oxygen. If, if DeSantis wants to make a go of this, the reservoir of support exists to do it. The message, the generational message exists to do it. But he's got to do it. And they're going to have to get out there and meet him on the battlefield. Thank you all. Appreciate it. All right, next to South Carolina and the murders of Alec Murdoch's wife and son, hear testimony from an agent who investigated the case and what she says about the theory of a possible second shooter. We'll be right back. In our national lead, it is day four in the double murder trial of former lawyer Alec Murdoch, who is accused of killing his wife and son. Today, defense attorneys grilled the prosecution's crime scene expert during several hours of quite intense cross-examination. CNN's Randy Kay is live outside the courthouse in Walterboro, South Carolina. Randy, we heard new audio from Alec Murdoch in court today. What, what did we learn from it? Yeah, Alex, this is the second interview that we've seen of his. Uh, he gave this interview to investigators on June 10th of 2021. So that would have been three days after the murders uh, of his wife and son. And that um, takes place in the car. Those murders were on June 7th. So he, he runs through the day, basically, on June 7th, the day of the murders. He tells them that uh, he got home from work. He left work early. He was hanging out with his youngest son, Paul. Um, they were riding around the property together. They were going hog hunting. He talked about the weapon, the gun that they were using to hunt these hogs. Uh, he said they used a 22 Magnum, which is not one of the weapons uh, that was used in these murders. It was a rifle and a shotgun that was used. Apparently, this is much smaller, according to the, uh, the witness for the state. He said he then took a nap and he went down to the dog kennels much later on, and that's where he found uh, the bodies of his wife and son. Now, earlier in court, the defense floated the idea that there could be a second shooter, given that there were two weapons used. Here's what was said. Doesn't this indicate to you there were two shooters? There was a shooter up here and a shooter down here? Is it a possibility? Well, let me say this. Is it a possibility that there are two shooters based on the data you collected? One explanation would be would be two shooters. One explanation. Not the, but one. Not the only one. Yeah, not the only one. But it is a reasonable explanation, just like one shooter running up that way, correct? So a re one of the reasonable explanations is there are two people there, there are two guns there, one's a shotgun, one's an AR, and we now see that that AR is being shot from way up here, correct? And that line goes a dozen, two dozen, three dozen yards from the feed room, if you follow it straight up. I don't know where they were within that line. Could someone have been a lookout there? They went there to kill Paul? And, and uh, that's the lookout. Maggie surprised him. They thought she was gone. Have no idea. Reasonable, though, right? Right? I know you weren't there, but none of us were there. We're trying to figure out what happened that night. And clearly, one reasonable explanation is two shooters. And Alex, the prosecution was quick to point out that even though uh, the defense was saying there could be two shooters, they were quick to say that one person could have just simply used two different weapons.
All right, Randy Kay, outside the courthouse in Walterboro, South Carolina. Thank you very much for that report. Now ahead, the manhunt underway for the man who police say may be using dating apps to hunt down his next victim. And we are back with our national lead and the race to find a man who police say may be using dating apps to lure and then attack women. 36-year-old Benjamin Foster is suspected of kidnapping and torture after a woman was found beaten unconscious in Oregon last week. And as CNN's Lucy Kafanoff reports, this is not the first time that Foster has been accused of attacking women. In southern Oregon, a manhunt is underway for 36-year-old Benjamin Obadiah Foster on the run after allegedly kidnapping and trying to kill a woman, beating her into unconsciousness. Police describing him as an extremely dangerous suspect who may attempt to change his appearance by shaving his beard and hair or by changing his hair color. The public being asked to pay particular attention to Foster's facial structure and eyes since those features are very difficult to change. Court documents allege Foster tried to kill the victim while intentionally torturing her and secretly confining her in a place where she was not likely to be found. Police say the victim was discovered last Tuesday in Grants Pass, Oregon, bound and severely beaten, now hospitalized in critical condition, the suspect fleeing the scene. This individual's behavior um, clearly um, shows that he is capable of doing anything to anyone within our community. Everybody is hurt by this. Uh, We typically think that this could not happen in our small community of 40,000 people, but this can happen anywhere in the United States. On Thursday, local, state and federal authorities raided a property about 20 miles north of Grants Pass, where they seized evidence, including Foster's 2008 Nissan Sentra. During that search, police arrested a 68-year-old woman for hindering prosecution and allegedly helping Foster evade law enforcement. Police say Foster evaded capture and likely received assistance in fleeing the area and believe he is actively using online dating applications to contact unsuspecting individuals who may be lured into assisting with the suspect's escape or potentially as additional victims. This isn't Foster's first run-in with the law. Court records show he was charged in two separate cases, accusing him of attacking women while living in Las Vegas years earlier. In the first case, Foster was charged with felony battery constituting domestic violence. His ex-girlfriend testified that he had attempted to strangle her in a rage in 2017 after another man texted her. While that case was still pending in court in 2019, Foster was charged with felony assault, battery, and kidnapping for allegedly attacking another woman, his girlfriend at the time. The victim told police Foster strangled her to the point of unconsciousness several times and kept her tied up for most of the next two weeks. Court records show she said she escaped after convincing Foster to go shopping. Foster ultimately agreed to plea deals, sentenced to a maximum of 30 months in prison, but given credit for the 729 days served in the first case. The police chief in Grants Pass, Oregon, expressing concern that he was set free. My response to that question is that, am I troubled by what I know already? The answer is yes. We're laser focused on capturing this man and bringing him to justice. 
And Alex, I just interviewed the Grants Pass police chief who told me the Oregon victim and the suspect had a prior relationship. She was only found because a friend went to the house, discovered the victim unconscious, and identified the suspect. The chief, describing the crime scene as absolutely horrific and disgusting, he told me he believes Foster is a threat to others who might befriend him, that he isn't a random attacker, but added that nothing's off the table with an individual like this. Alex? What a disturbing story. Lucy Kafanoff, thank you very much for that report. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the Memphis Police Department under scrutiny. A city council member will be joining Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Plus, the Biden administration's urgent message for Israelis and Palestinians in the wake of a deadly week. We'll be hearing from the White House next. Stay with us. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.